0: The following historic recording by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones dates from the earliest days of tape recording and was actually recorded on paper tape. However, it has been digitally restored and although the quality is not to modern standards, we hope that you will find it to be a great blessing. As with all Dr. Lloyd-Jones sermons, its relevance for these modern times is undiminished. ...what we said on that occasion, because it is essential as an introduction to what we are going to do this morning. We suggested that there are many people who fail in the Christian life because they have never yet awakened to the fact that they are involved in a spiritual warfare. The writer of the hymn we have just been singing understood that well. He starts off, therefore Christian, seek not yet repose, cast thy dreams of ease away. So many think that uh, the moment you're converted or take some kind of decision, uh, that uh, that's the end, you've finished, the things happen to you. And from there on, it's going to be a perfectly easy and eventful life. Everything happens for you and everything's done for you. You recline on your bank or bed of roses and there are no more problems. Ease. And we consider why people sometimes have that notion of the Christian life. Fundamentally, of course, it's due to an ignorance of the Scriptures. No man who's read the Scriptures could ever hold that view. For the Scriptures tell us everywhere as they tell us here that we are involved and are participators in a tremendous spiritual conflict. All these forces that the Apostle mentions here are arrayed against the forces of God and of His Christ. And their one concern is to defeat Christians. And obviously, if a Christian is not aware of this spiritual realm and this spiritual subtlety, he's already defeated. A man who doesn't even know this, a man who isn't aware that he's in a fight, is a man who's defeated. So defeated that he's blind, he doesn't know. So we emphasize that, and then we emphasize the terrible subtlety of the conflict. The wiles of the wicked one. The way he misleads us and trips us and fools us and gets us down without our knowing that anything has happened at all. Oh, everything we are told about the devil in the Bible emphasizes this element of subtlety, his ingratiating character. Indeed, he can come as an angel of light. He can quote scripture. He can encourage us to do Christian work as long as he is keeping us where he wants us in some other respect. He often does so so that people go on happy that everything is right because they're active in Christian work and not aware of some terrible sin that's in their lives at that very moment. He can transform himself into an angel of light. His subtlety, his ingenuity, his malignity are beyond description. Here the apostle warns us against all that. But thank God he doesn't stop at mere warning. He goes on to tell us that there is a way of victory. That's why he writes. He wouldn't have written but for that. Finally, my brethren, he says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. You needn't be defeated, he says. There is a way of overcoming him. There is a way to be victorious. And again, I say many fail because they don't realize that. There are those who think of the Christian life as a life of which it can be said that you just uh, live perpetually to... um, scorn delights and live laborious days. It isn't that. That's quite wrong again. It's as wrong as that first misconception of reclining on the bank of roses. No, no, there is a victory possible. But it is in the Lord and in the power of his might, the energy, the vigor of his strength. And then we ended on this note. That perhaps the most frequent cause of failure of all is this is our failure to understand exactly how that strength and might become ours. How we can avail ourselves of the strength of the Lord and the power of his might. Now that in particular, as I understand this paragraph, is the thing that it emphasizes most of all. I put it like this in a closing word. So often when you talk to people about these difficulties about this spiritual conflict, about the assaults and the attacks of the devil, which I described in detail last Sunday morning. We took it uh, uh, as he attacks the body, as he attacks the mind, and as he attacks the heart and the will. He attacks us everywhere, and there's no limit to it. Now, I was suggesting that uh, perhaps our main trouble is due to the fact that we don't know how to avail ourselves of this power. And when you discuss these various problems and forms of attacks with people, and you say to them, well now, what does the one do about this? Almost invariably the answer you'll be given is just this. They say, all you need to do is to pray about it, pray about it. But you see, that isn't what the apostle Paul says. The apostle Paul does mention prayer, but you notice where it came, didn't you? It came at the end of the paragraph, not at the beginning. Paul, in helping these Ephesians, doesn't say, well, now you've got great problems. All you need to do is to go on praying. No, before he tells them to pray, the apostle tells them to take unto themselves the whole armor, the full panoply of God. The armor that God provides. And indeed, he isn't content even with a general statement there. He takes the trouble to take us through it piece by piece and bit by bit and tell us how to put it on. Now, I'm suggesting... That there are large numbers of people who are in great trouble and distress simply because they've either never read this paragraph or if they've read it, they haven't looked at it. They've assumed that uh, they needn't pay attention to it, that as long as they're praying, all is well. And they've never done this. And yet, you see, this is how the apostle tells us that the strength and the might of the Lord becomes available to us. In other words, let me put it like this. In this conflict, in this battle, there are two things that are absolutely essential. The first is that we must have this strength and power that the Lord alone can give us. But in addition to that, we need to be clothed with this armor. Or if you like it the other way around, it's equally good. The armor of God will be valueless to us unless we have the strength and the power that he alone can give to enable us to use it. So you see, it isn't praying only, it isn't the armor only, it's putting on the armor with prayer. The hymn puts it, put on the gospel armor, each piece put on with prayer. That's it. And our tragedy always is that we are either or, instead of both end. It isn't only praying, it's all this as well. But it isn't this alone, there must be the prayer that links us to him and gives us the power to use the armor. Well, now then, that seems to me to be the way in which the apostle tells us that we can not only fight in this spiritual conflict with all its devilish, fiendish subtlety, and oh, how evident and rampant it is at this present time, how easily duped God's people are, satisfied by one side forgetting the other, not looking at themselves as a whole. Now then, I say the way to overcome... And the way to be triumphant is to heed carefully the apostle's teaching and his advice. And this morning I want in particular to look at this question of the armor, the whole armor of God, and to try to understand together what he means by it. Now, the controlling principle, it seems to me, in expounding this armor is that we must always forget that it is the whole armor of God. It isn't something human. I mustn't digress, but let me indicate in a passing hurried word what I mean by this. It seems to me that the whole error of what we may describe as the Catholic conception of holiness is due to the fact that they have never paid heed to this particular paragraph. How do the Roman Catholics and other Catholics fight this battle, this problem of sin within and without? Well, you notice their method generally is the method of uh, monasticism, going out of the world giving up certain things, isolating yourself. Uh, You've got to be religious, as they say, and they mean by that a technical term. You go out of business and its affairs and you give your whole life to being religious. Or it may include uh, feast days and fast days and the observance of Lent and things like that. That's their method. Now, that's not the apostle's method. Indeed, this apostle denounces that method, you remember, in the second chapter of his epistle to the Colossians. Those people, he says, who observe days and uh, and new moons and uh, fastings and things like that, let no man beguile you, he says, of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshipping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, and not holding the head from which the body by joints and bands, having nourishment ministered and knit together, increaseth with the increase of God. Uh, Therefore, he says... uh, If he be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are he subject to ordinances, touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using, after the commandments and doctrines of men? Now he says that kind of thing has a show of wisdom in will-worship, and in humility, and in neglecting the body. But it's not God's way at all. Now that is to fight this battle in an earthly and in a human manner. That isn't the apostle's way. His method is, I say, to take unto us the whole armor of God. Now then, let's look at it. The first thing, obviously, we must emphasize is this word, whole. We need it all. We need every part of it. We can't afford to neglect a single piece. That's why I say he goes into these details. He says the whole, and then in order to make certain that we take the whole, he says you take this, that, and the other. The whole armor of God. Am I conveying, I wonder, the sense of urgency to you? Are you aware, my friend, of the danger in which you are at this very moment simply because you're a Christian? The moment you become a Christian, you become a special object of the devil's attack. If he can mar and ruin and spoil and ridicule the work of Christ, how pleased he is. So the moment you become a Christian, all this is played upon you and focused upon you. And therefore I say we should all realize this tension, this state of warfare. And realize that we need nothing less than the whole armor of God. It means the armor that God provides. And that is again another very vital principle. You read the uh, great commentators on this uh, section and you'll find that they disagree over certain parts as I'm going to show you in a moment. And it seems to me that the disagreement is generally due to the fact that some of them have not observed that it is the whole armor of God. Something that is provided for us by God in its entirety from beginning to end. All you and I do is to put it on. It isn't something we've produced or manufactured. It is presented to us, it's offered us, it's given. And we put it on and we use it by the strength that he supplies us. Well now then, having dealt with it in that way, let us have a look at some of these portions and pieces of the armor. What is the first thing? Well, here he is, he's coming to details. Stand therefore, he says, And you won't be able to stand if you haven't got this armor on. Stand, therefore, having your loins, that's the first thing, girt about with truth. Now, you read about this ancient armor, and you'll find they're all agreed in saying that you must start with the part that goes upon the girdle. It was the first thing to do. It's there that the clothing is held together, and everything is kept in position so that if the girdle isn't right, nothing's going to be right. You must start with a foundation, with a basic thing. And uh, here it is. Now, it seems to me that you can classify this description of this armor very conveniently into three groups. There is, first of all, what I would kind describe as the general basis If you like, the integument, that which actually is upon your body. And there are three pieces there. The part that goes about the loin, and the breastplate, and the covering of the feet. Then the second group consists of two things, which are more specifically weapons of defense. The shield and the helmet. And finally, there is a weapon which is more or less offensive, and that is the sword. Now bearing that general classification in mind, we start, I say, with the loins girded with truth. Now this is obviously something which is quite basic and fundamental. If this isn't right, says Paul, and if this isn't in position, It's no use putting on the other pieces. They won't hold their positions. And when you need them in a subtle moment, they'll fall off from you. You must put the foundation on. All the other clothing is going to fit onto this and to be held in position by it. So you must take exceptional care with this. What is it then? Well, he says, it is truth. Now then, what does he mean by this? This girdle of truth. Well, at this point you'll find that some of the commentators will tell you that it means sincerity. It means our truthfulness. They then go on, of course, to explain that in the Christian life, uh, everything is vain if we are not honest, if we are not sincere, if we are not truthful. They say, you can't begin to fight the enemy if you've got a lie in your heart, or if there's a contradiction in you. No, no, they say, the first thing is absolute truthfulness, sincerity, and honesty. Well, of course, we agree entirely that sincerity and truthfulness and honesty are absolute essentials. But it seems to me abundantly clear that the apostle didn't mean that. Because all that is something that I'm responsible for. That is something that I produce. Whereas Paul is talking about the armor of God. The armor that God supplies, something that's given to me by God. It isn't some inward state or condition of mine. Again, I say, let's be truthful, we must be, and sincere, but if you're relying upon your own sincerity to defend yourself against the devil, well, I assure you, you'll be defeated immediately. Thank God it isn't that. Well, what is it then? Well, here it seems to me, quite inevitably, that the apostle is referring to the truth, the truth, and especially to my appropriation. Of the truth. Very well then, what he's saying is this. That in a battle, in a conflict with the devil, the first thing that is absolutely essential is that I should accept the revealed truth of God. For without it, I am already defeated. The whole basis of my standing and my position is that I base my whole outlook of la- on life upon the revelation of God's truth which I've got in this world. I put it on. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, he means something like this, doesn't he? It's not enough that I've had a certain experience. Oh yes, experiences are valuable, they're essential. And we must have experience. If we've got nothing experimental in our lives, we're not Christians. Yes, but if you think it's only experience, well, then you're in the most dangerous position conceivable. You may feel happy as a result of an experience, but as certainly as you feel happy now, a day will come when you'll not be happy. The devil will see to that. And if you're relying upon an experience or your feelings, you're bound to go down. My friend, the basis of defense against the devil is Truth. The revealed truth of God. What is this? Well, it means the whole truth. Not portions of truth, but the whole truth. In other words, I've got to base my whole life and my activity in life upon the right view of God. In his holiness, in his righteousness, in all his perfections. Yes, in his wrath, in all his glory. God. And I know nothing about God apart from this revelation which I have in this book. I accept the revelation, truth. And then the truth about myself, the truth about sin. And again, you see, I don't know these things apart from the revelation which I have in this book. By nature, I think I'm a good fellow. I can explain my deficiencies and my shortcomings away. It's only when I come to this revealed truth that I'm given to understand that in me, that is to say, in my flesh dwelleth no good. Who can know it? That man in sin is a vile creature and that he's like that because of the fall. Now, I need to know all that. How can I possibly fight the devil unless I realize that the devil is as powerful as this? That he went to the first men who had been created in the image of God and who was perfect. And got him down. And if he got down that perfect man who would come out of the hands of God in all his glory. How much more easily can he get me down who I am born in sin and shapen in iniquity. My friends, you must know the truth if you want to fight the devil. It's basic, it's foundational, it's fundamental. Without this truth you can't stand And then we must go on to the way of salvation and realize that it was only possible in Christ that the problem of sin, the problem of the control and the dominion of Satan is so profound that it took the Son of God himself to come into the world from heaven before it could be solved. So that the problem of sin is not an easy one, it's a tremendously difficult one, as difficult as that. Now it's only truth that enables me to know that. It's only by knowing truth that I measure the might and the power of the devil. In other words, what we need, my friend, is doctrine. The doctrines of the Bible, the things we are not interested in. And it's because we are not interested in doctrines, we are all failing as we are. But it's truth, and this is truth. These great foundational, fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith then go on to judgment. And remember that judgment must begin at the house of God. We're all clear about the judgment of the ungodly, but judgment must begin at the house of God. Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. How often do we consider this aspect of truth? We preach judgment to the ungodly outside. How often do we preach it to ourselves? We must all appear before the judgment throne of Christ and give an account of the deeds done in the body. Every one of us and heaven and hell, and all the great foundational doctrines of this most holy faith of ours. Now what the apostle says is this, that there must be no hesitation at all in us with respect to these doctrines. We must accept them fully, we must commit ourselves to them essentially. They must be the controlling factor in the whole of our life. Gird yourselves, get the lines fixed and established with truth. I could very easily keep you for the remainder of the time in showing you how the scriptures in various places teach us plainly that it's because men don't realize this they fall. Did you notice what Peter said in that third chapter of his second epistle which we read just now? He is referring to these great epistles of Paul. And he's uh, reminding uh, these uh, people that uh, the apostle has dealt with these great problems and he wants them to read them. He says, I know that there are certain things in them which are difficult to understand. Because truth, you know, can be difficult. You've got to have a spiritual mind and you've got to be diligent and you've got to give yourself to it if you want to grasp it. And uh, Peter says, there are many things, therefore, in the epistles of Paul which are very hard to be grasped and to be understood, which the Unlearned and unstable rest, as they do the other scriptures also, to their own destruction. You can rest the scriptures to your own destruction. You can misuse truth and it will be your damnation. You will give yourself an ease and a peace which isn't true because you are twisting the scriptures and you rest it to your own destruction. But you notice the, the way in which he puts it. Who are the people who do this? He says they are the unlearned. And the people who are always unstable are the unlearned. The type of Christian who is carried about by every wind of doctrine, who runs after the latest craze or the latest fashion, he's always an ignorant Christian. They are the people who are carried about by every wind of doctrine and the cunning craftiness and the slight of men. They are unstable, says Peter. Why? Well, they are unlearned. They don't know the truth. And it is because so many Christians in this age are unlearned and are not interested in truth in this vital sense, are just content with what they wanted. They want peace of conscience and want no more. And they're unstable because they're unlearned. And they're therefore dupes and victims of Satan. Oh, our Lord himself had said it before Peter even thought of it. He said, if he continue in my word... Then are ye my disciples indeed. Who is he talking to? He's talking to people who have just expressed belief in him. They just said that they believed in him. When he, as he spake these words, many believed in him. Then said he unto them that believed in him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. It's the truth that frees, frees from the assaults of the devil and from everything that cripples us in our battle against it. But if we don't know the truth, how can we be free? And the very people to whom he uttered those words didn't accept that truth. And he in a few moments is referring to them as, ye are of your father, the devil, though they thought they believed in him. It's the truth, my friends, that makes us free. Well, you know, this is a trouble which one finds constantly in the scriptures. Take the church at Corinth, for instance. Paul has to write that first epistle to them. Some of them were even beginning to doubt the actuality of the resurrection. They were becoming shaky about doctrines. Like many a modern man, they were saying doctrines don't matter as long as you're a Christian, and so on. But the apostle writes that great 15th chapter of the first epistle to them. And this is what he says, Evil communications corrupt good manners. Evil communications, wrong doctrine. False ideas, wrong teaching. This isn't trivial, says Paul. If you believe in wrong teaching, your life is soon going to show it. Evil communications corrupt good manners. So it's vital that you should be clear, he says, about these doctrines. You can't say, well, it doesn't matter what a man believes as long as he lives the life. You can't live the life if you don't believe correctly. And then take the author of the Epistle to the Hebrews, he says exactly the same thing. Here are these Hebrew Christians in trouble, some of them even looking back with longing eyes on Judaism, wondering whether they hadn't been a bit precipitate in believing in Christ and leaving that old religion. They were looking back. They were shaky. They were all in a very terribly dangerous position on the edge of a precipice. What's the matter with them? Well, the apostle tells us at the end of the fifth chapter that the real trouble with them was this, that uh, they hadn't exercised their senses. They hadn't been studying the truth. He says, "You, I've got to give you the first principles again. You haven't grown. You haven't made use of your faculties. You haven't studied the truth. And the result is, you're shaking, you don't know where you are. And still worse, he says, I can't give you the greatest consolation of all, which is the picture of Christ as the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. I can't give it you, you, says, says the writer, because you're not fit for this strong meat. I've got to give you the preliminary, the beginning again. You don't grow. And you see, you need to be strong in order to take strong meat. It was because they hadn't exercised their faculties that they were in the terribly dangerous condition. Well, very well, I say this is the thing with which we start. The loins must be girded about with truth, the whole truth. I'm not talking about a superficial reading of the Bible or a hurried classification. I'm not asking you to study it as a literary document. I say we must get down beyond the words to the doctrines, the principles. And have them ever in our minds and meditate upon them. And live daily by them. And put them ever into practice. Truth. And without it we are already defeated. We are already lost. Let me hurry on to the second thing. The second thing he tells us that we need is the breastplate of righteousness. I needn't emphasize this, need I? The breastplate covers what is perhaps the most important part of the body, the thorax. It covers the heart and these vital organs without which we can't live. So obviously, a breastplate is of extreme importance judged from any angle whatsoever. And the apostle tells us, therefore, put on the breastplate of righteousness. What he mean? Well, again, you'll find the same type of expositor to whom I've already referred saying uh, that this means, of course, our ethical righteousness. They say that he means here, uh, you must live a good life. You must protect the vitals by living a good life, avoiding sin and doing good. Ethical righteousness. But again, it seems to me to be an utterly inadequate and impossible suggestion That is something that you and I are responsible for. That is something that you and I produce. Whereas the apostle tells us to put on the whole armor of God. Strong in the strength that God supplies. This armor that God gives us. It can't be our ethical righteousness for this good reason also. That the devil in a moment can pierce our ethical righteousness. Haven't we all discovered that already? when you tend to be a bit pleased with yourself because you're such a good Christian and are so active and so busy and you think that you've got on your breastplate of righteousness and suddenly you find that the devil has pierced and penetrated, of course. If he felt competent to tempt even the Son of God, if he could attack a man like David and all these Old Testament saints and get him down, what is your righteousness and life? Why, our Lord tells us that after we've done everything we are supposed to do, we are still unprofitable servants. We've nothing whereof to boast. Our own righteousness, if we rely upon it, is but as filthy rags. It's no good. No, no, thank God. It isn't your righteousness and mine. It isn't your ethical behavior and mine. What is it then? Well, my friends, this is nothing but the righteousness of God. In Jesus Christ. That's the breastplate. If you like it in more doctrinal form, this is justification by faith only. This is the righteousness that God supplies to me and asks me to put it on. And I need this particular righteousness to defend myself. Why? Well, because the enemy attacks me in this kind of way. He comes and makes us doubt whether we are Christian at all. He comes at times and says, Now, you've always regarded yourself as a Christian. Are you quite sure that you're a Christian? And he puts his questions. He raises his doubts and his difficulties. We considered that on a previous Sunday morning. And then sometimes he does it in this way. He reminds us of our past sins. He resurrects it. We'd forgotten it 20, 30 years ago. Suddenly the whole thing is there in front of us. And we see ourselves doing it. And you can't get rid of it. Uh, Do you know anything about that? The devil does that sort of thing. He'll resurrect your past sins. Or uh, he will show us our failure to be what we ought to be. You may be reading an excellent biography of some great saint. And you're enjoying it. But suddenly the thought is insinuated into your mind by the devil. Are you like that? You know, if you're not like that, you're not a Christian at all. Every Christian is like that, and you are not like that, therefore you're not a Christian. That's the kind of thing he does. Shows us what we ought to be, shows us our failures and our shortcomings. And of course, especially, should we fall into sin, he will come to us and he'll say, well, of course, there you are. Before your conversion you sinned. It was all right and God could forgive you because you didn't have the light then. But now you've had the light and you've known the light. You're a Christian man and you've sinned deliberately against the light and you've sinned against the Holy Ghost and there's no forgiveness for you. You've just sinned yourself out of God's love. That's where you are. Those are some of the fiery darts of the evil one. And I tell you at this point, my friend, there's only one protection that is adequate and sufficient. It is the breastplate of the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ.
1: There is only one
0: answer I have at that point, and it's just to say this. Christ loved me and gave himself for me. He died for my sins, past, present, and future. I am in Christ. And I belong to him. And what is true of him is true of me. I have been crucified with him. I have died with him. I'm buried with him. I'm risen with him. I'm a new man in Christ. Yes, I've sinned, but Christ has covered my sin. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, still cleanseth from all sin and unrighteousness. The breastplate of righteousness. I know many Christian people who are unhappy because they're not absolutely clear about this. I think they believe it. But you know, they don't know how to put on this breastplate. They don't know how to use it. They don't know how to apply it. They believe it, I know. And yet, you see, when the devil comes and attacks them, he makes them shaky about it. Put on the breastplate, my friend. Are you clear about this? Let me put it once more very simply, even thus in a Sunday morning service. You and I and all others who are Christians are saved entirely and only and solely and utterly by the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done. Nothing that is true of you and of me comes into it at all. Christ is my righteousness. The only righteousness is the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ, the righteousness that he gives, which is this. All our sins, every one of them, were laid and have been laid upon the Son of God. When he died upon that cross, he was bearing the punishment of your sins. You were not born then, but he's born them all. Not only the sins you've committed in the past, all your sins that you may commit in the future as well. Oh, so someone, that's a very dangerous thing to say. Aren't you encouraging people to sin? I am not. Because if you're a Christian, that won't encourage you to sin. You'll be so amazed at the love of God, it'll keep you from sin. If you take license out of that, I say you don't really believe the truth. All sins of believers were dealt with when he died upon the cross. Quite right. Amen. It's the most glorious truth of all. But not only that, God takes the righteousness of his own Son, which is absolutely perfect, his obedience to God's law, his obedience to his Father's will in everything, his perfect life, and you know, he gives that to you and to me. He clothes us with the righteousness of Christ, so that not only am I forgiven, I am made positively righteous by Christ. That's the bit of righteousness. To believe that and to be certain of that and to rely upon that and to hold on to that and whatever the devil may say to you at any point over anything you may have done or not, confront him by the righteousness of Christ and he can't touch you. Whether it's past sins, whether it's a sin you've just committed, whether it's what you haven't done, whether it's anything, you're entirely dependent upon Christ. That is justification by faith only. That is the righteousness of God. It's got nothing to do with the law. It's got nothing to do with my activity. It's Christ and what he's done, what he is. And my salvation is entirely in him and of him. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. It will protect you at your most vital point. Let me say just a word about the last, which I'm going to deal with this morning. The third in this first section. Having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Is it foolish to say, as I feel constrained to say at this moment, isn't the scripture marvelous? Your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. What's he mean? What does preparation mean? It means preparedness, quickness, swiftness, and also sure footedness. You see the picture, don't you? Here am I, and there's my enemy. And there's nothing more characteristic of him than his subtlety, his quickness. He comes here, he comes there. I've got to keep watching. Our hymn has told us that, watching unto prayer. Watch and pray, you've got to watch. The apostles always saying it, quit you like men. Watch ye, stand fast in the faith. This enemy, so subtle, he moves quickly. With all his brilliance and his power, I never know which way he's coming. He's coming. And you see, unless I'm equally quick in my movements and ready at any point, he'll get me down, he'll attack me in the back before I know where I am. So I've got to have my feet shod with the preparation, the preparedness, the quickness, the agility, the swiftness of movement, which is essential in the handling of this armor and all that God has provided for me. My reactions must be quick in every sense. Well, now, why does he say that uh, what I need in that respect is the preparation of the gospel of peace? Why did he put it like that, you think? Was that just uh, saying something? The word peace offered itself to him and he put it down? Not at all. He means precisely and exactly what he says. This is what he means. He says you will never be quick in your movements and in your ability to deal with this enemy and to... uh, Uh, hold him back and uh, to perhaps uh, slash him with the sword if he should come too near you'll never be quick like this until you're in a state of absolute peace within with regard to your whole relationship to God and with regard to your salvation this is in other words assurance of salvation isn't it obvious take a person take a Christian who's being attacked by the enemy And alas, this poor Christian is indeed already unhappy. He or she is a little bit doubtful about uh, salvation. You see, there's a war going on within before the devil comes at all. And if you're fighting a civil war within, how can you fight the enemy that's outside? You can't. It's impossible. If we are to fight this enemy, there must be complete freedom within. There must be freedom of action, so that when he comes, I don't have to look at my defenses and begin to wonder where I am and what I'm doing. I'm all right and I'm ready for him. I can be altogether objective. That's what he means. It is the kind of objectivity that results from peace of conscience, peace with God, peace within, and peace with others. If there's something nagging at you inside, if you're unhealthy, if you're ill, if you're diseased spiritually, how can you fight the enemy? It's impossible. There must be peace within. And the way he puts that is, do you see, to put it in terms of this picture of having our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. It's a terrible thing for a country. When she's fighting another country to have problems inside, I have no doubt that one of the main factors which enabled us to win our victory in the last war was that this country was virtually 100% united. But if there's conflict within the nation, how can you fight the enemy outside? No, no, the condition of success is a unified nation, and it's exactly the same with an individual personality. And the apostle, you see, goes on in a perfect sequence. Truth. The particular truth about righteousness and justification. And once you're clear about that, well, you'll have this peace. But it's so important that he must emphasize it. He says you must know how to deal with the doubts that lurk, with all the questions that arise within, and all the kind of fifth column that's in you yourself. Get rid of it. Get rid of that. That's putting on the sandals, the footwear, which is the preparation of the gospel of peace. Well, my friends, our time has gone. And I can take you no further this morning. But uh, we have taken these things in detail and we have tarried with them because it is so vital and essential that we should do so. These are the things, you see, you actually put on your body. God willing, we'll go on to look next Sunday at the shield, the helmet, and the sword. But these things that we've tarried with this morning are absolute essentials. These are the basic, fundamental things without which the the others that remain would be of no final value to us. Very well, my dear friends. As the enemy comes and attacks you and hurls his fiery darts at you to inflame your passions and what remains in you of that old nature in your body and in your flesh as he comes to your mind, as he attacks your heart, as he comes in every way, realize that this and this alone is the way to meet him, strong in the strength that God supplies through His eternal Son, and clothed with the full panoply of God's armor. And with this, victory is assured, and we need not be afraid. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust Audio Library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party, and second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.